0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 1, Chapters 4 through 6, and Book 2, Chapter 1. The people of Paris, who have gathered in the Great Hall for the mystery play, continue to find their entertainment not on the stage, but in the audience, as they gawk at the arrival of the Flemish Ambassadors. Coming in on the Ambassadors' coattails is Master Jacques Copenol, who insists, to the dismay of the usher and the delight of the crowd, on being announced by the less-than-dignified title of hosier? The audience is still more delighted when, following this formal introduction, Copenol recognizes and clasps hands with his old friend, the beggar, Clopin Troifoux. As the parade of reverend personages arrives to see the play, quote, a thousand eyes from the crowd fixed upon every face on the platform, a thousand murmurs upon the announcement of every name, And in the process, all have forgotten, including at this point we the readers, about the play itself. Poor Gringoire. He does his best to rally support from the audience for it to begin, but the good fat fellow beside him responds, "'Begin what?' Joannes de Molendino had thought it was over, and is incredulous that they want to start it all over again. And Gisquet and Leonard, like the rest of the crowd, prefer to see the themes of religion and nobility played out in crude reality than overwrought art. The cardinal finally gives indifferent assent to the recommencement of the play, and for a moment, silent reigns. But only a moment— as the procession and the shrill announcements of the usher begin again. All further efforts to recover the audience's attention are in vain, and Gringoire is left to reflect wistfully on that golden hour when the audience was clamoring for the bailiff to be hanged. Then the attention of the audience is captured by Copenol, who, disappointed that this morality play has involved neither wrestlers nor weapons, and that no one has come to blows, proposes a more amusing form of entertainment. They should elect a Pope of Fools, or Lord of Misrule. Every man is to take turns putting his head through a hole and pulling a face at the rest, and the ugliest, chosen by popular acclaim, is chosen Pope. The crowd greets the suggestion with wild enthusiasm, and the faces— Old and young, cone-shaped and triangular, bird-beaked and pig-snouted, pass by in a human kaleidoscope. The sublime grimace of one face dazzles the assembly, and with a storm of applause and a unanimous vote, the lord of misrule is elected. But the surprise and admiration of the audience reaches its highest pitch when they discover, after he steps from behind the window, that this man's expression is no deliberate and theatrical contortion. It is his natural face. It is Quasimodo, the humpbacked bell-ringer, whose face is itself a kaleidoscope of disfigurements. We discover that this poor devil is well known to the Parisian populace, from the eruption of cries about his gutter-prowling, window-peeping, and spell-casting villainy. But literally deaf to their insults and blinded by their admiration, he submits to the attention and allows himself to be raised to their shoulders and carried in a procession through the Paris streets. If the departure of the crowd allowed any possibility of the stragglers turning their attention back to Gringoire's play, that possibility is eliminated by the arrival of Esmeralda. When she appears in the square, The few people remaining in the hall rush to the windows and climb up the walls in a desperate effort just to get a glimpse. And finally, like a general who has fought a brave fight, Gringoire surrenders and beats a retreat. Gringoire wanders the dark streets of Paris with no money, no food, no shelter, and only philosophy and self-aggrandizing poetic musings to give him comfort. Finding himself even there, still plagued by reminders of his dramatic failure, he considers plunging into the Seine and drowning himself. If only it were not so cold. So he decides to plunge into the heart of the gaiety instead. The second of my posts to the Facebook group was called Gringoire. I find Gringoire to be lovable in all his adolescent, starry-eyed, self-important artistic aspiration. Line after line in these chapters made me laugh out loud. But it is a benevolent and empathetic laughter, the kind I would try to stifle if I were in his presence, so as not to discourage his simple-minded but still charming idealism. Gringoire takes on the role of the tragically misunderstood and underappreciated poet, and of all the roles he might have written or directed, his own is probably the best of the performances to his credit. Here are a few of my favorite lines as Hugo pokes fun at the hapless and dreamy Gringoire. When, in the competition between idle curiosity and art, the former is the definitive victor. Quote, who is that pale-faced man in a black coat beside the boards? Alas, dear reader, that is Pierre Gringoire and his prologue. We had all entirely forgotten him. This was precisely what he feared. Unquote. "When, after Gringoire's desperate pleas for the play to recommence, the cardinal and the bailiff offer him dubious support." Quote, the bailiff advanced to the edge of the platform and cried aloud, after imposing silence by a wave of his hand, citizens, commoners, and residents, to satisfy those who wish the play to begin again and those who wish it to end, his eminence orders that it be continued, unquote. When Gringoire finds encouragement in the one member of the audience still facing in the direction of the stage, quote, The patient fat man, whom he had already consulted at a critical moment, was still turned towards the theater. Gringoire was touched to the heart by the fidelity of his only listener. He went up to him and addressed him, shaking him slightly by the arm. For the worthy man was leaning against the railing in a light doze." When, just as the play is about to begin again, Gringoire finds himself thwarted by the disappearance of the ladder. Quote, the rascal, he muttered, and why did he carry off that ladder? That he might see Esmeralda, piteously responded Jupiter. He said, Stay, there's a ladder which is doing no one any good. And he took it. Unquote. When he takes shelter in the self-deceptive comfort of philosophy. Quote, he longed to find some dark and solitary alley where he might meditate at his ease, and let the philosopher apply the first healing balm to the poet's wounds. Besides, philosophy was his only refuge, for he knew not where to find shelter. When, if he is to suffer, he turns his suffering into the true poet's plight. Lucky ferryman, thought Gringoire, You never dream of glory, and you write no wedding songs. What are the marriages of kings and Burgundian duchesses to you? You know no marguerites, save those which grow up on your turf in April for the pasturage of your cows. And I, poet that I am, am hooted, and I shiver, and I owe twelve pence, and the soles of my shoes are so thin that you might use them for glasses in your lantern. Thanks, ferryman. Your hut rests my eyes and makes me forget Paris. Unquote. And when self deceptive philosophy and poetry run up against reality, quote, Ah, said he, how cheerfully I would drown myself if the water were not so cold. Quote, then he took a desperate resolve. To plunge boldly into the very heart of the gaiety and go directly to the greve. Unquote. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was called The Poor Poet. At one point in drafting my notes for this week's commentary, I referred to Gringoire as The Poor Poet. Then I paused reflectively. The Poor Poet, wasn't that the title of a painting? And remembered that it was. And further, This portrait of the poor poet by nineteenth-century pharmacist-turned-romanticist painter Carl Spitzweg has some commonalities with Hugo's depiction of Gringoire. In Spitzweg's painting, The Poor Poet, which I will link in an email to you and post to the Facebook group, the starving artist lies in a cold and barren attic room, surrounded by well-worn books, sheltered from a leaky ceiling by an umbrella warmed by his own manuscripts burning in the stove, and occupied, not with lofty thoughts of grand ideas, but with the crushing of a flea between his fingers. Some critics have thought he was counting syllables, but a note by the artist himself indicates otherwise. What I see in common between these two depictions is that both show the plight of the poor poet, but they do so with a little good-spirited ridicule. As they portray him, though he suffers for his art, there is neither real depth to his suffering nor real loftiness to his art. I see him as a bit of a posturer, but also a lovable one. As a really entertaining aside, I have to share that this very famous work of art was also famously the victim of an art heist. Twice. Spitzweg produced four identical versions of this painting. One of them hung in the New National Gallery in Berlin. The story of the theft, which can be read in an article I will link to on the Facebook page, is outrageous almost beyond belief. Here is the gist of it. In 1976, a performance artist marched into the museum with wire cutters, clipped its hanging wires and ripped it off the wall, ran out of the museum pursued by guards to a waiting escape vehicle with the driver's door propped open by chewing gum, fled to the nearby apartment of a Turkish family and hung it on their wall, and then called the police and turned himself in. Oh, and he had a friend film the whole escapade. A performance art piece, he said, was a, quote, protest action, first of all against the institutionalization of art, secondarily about discrimination against foreign workers, While awaiting trial, he fled the country. Eventually caught crossing the German border, he was imprisoned for 14 days, where he says he had great meditation time and read the most books in his life. But that's only the gist of it. You have to read the whole story for yourself. Then, in 1989, the painting was on loan at the Charlottenburg Palace. One day, two visitors, one in a wheelchair with the label No Problem, and the other, posing as his escort, visited the display. The man in the wheelchair leapt up, grabbed the painting off the wall, and ran out the door of the museum. Despite the museum's offer of substantial rewards, that version of the painting has never been seen again the poor, poor poet.